Okay, well, good evening, gentlemen, and let's um, jump back into the parables. We're going to be looking at, uh, at, at Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. You see the conclusion of the section on the parable of the unforgiving servant and the parable of the lost sheep, which in Matthew's gospel fall within that discourse that is on the church. Now, if you just flip forward, you'll see that chapter 20 of Matthew is the next obvious parable, and that's the laborers in the vineyard. But if you take the, liber- the laborers in the vineyard out of context, you can conclude all kinds of things about it, uh, many of them right and salutary. <laughs> but I think it might benefit us to look at the context in which Jesus speaks it, particularly here in Matthew's gospel. Because you'll note if you just go to chapter 20, and you're going to remember that the chapter breaks are artificial and added in afterwards. You know, Jesus wasn't talking and then just said, oh, chapter 20 for the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, so he's just doing this fluid discourse. And the context of this is the context of uh, the rich young man. So we'll have an invocation and prayer, and we'll jump right into chapter 19 at verse 16 in order to get the context for the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so a moment of uh, transparency as we go into the rich young man, and as we go into the labor, labors in the vineyard. Um, I this is this is one of the texts that I have been dissatisfied with. Now, not the text itself, okay, <laughs> but the way I've heard the text preach, the way I've understood the text, perhaps even the way I've preached it myself. There's some dissatisfaction there. There's some there's some a sense in my own mind that I don't have grasped a hold of this yet as as well as I have grasped a hold of some other texts. Okay, so I want to make that caveat and invite you to uh, sharpen my focus as we sharpen our focus together on this particular text. So if that bleeds through, good. I've already stated it out front. Um, but otherwise, let's simply pick up at 16 and note what's going on. So we are told in the narrative, behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, we would expect Jesus to say, None. You can't do any good deeds to receive eternal life. But that's not what Jesus says, interestingly. And I think most troubling of all, especially to most of the sermons these days on this text, is that the preacher wants Jesus to say things he doesn't say. (laughs) 
So listen to what Jesus says at verse 17. He said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? Already, I I think that this is the tell that Jesus is going to be doing much more than meets the eye. And this is a similar move to what he does with Nicodemus. Remember when Nicodemus says, good teacher, and is really fluffing him up? And And then Jesus just flat out says, look, unless you're born from above, you don't stand a chance which just undercuts the entire thing. I think Jesus is making a similar move here. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The very first thing Jesus does is attacks the man's notion of what a good deed is in the first place. And he does that subtly. But that's the opening question. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's a sense in which Jesus recognizes in this man that this man hasn't received Jesus himself as the Messiah. So he's asking Jesus this question as if Jesus is is an authority on the matter of what is good, but the man himself hasn't granted Jesus that authority. I think that's the verbal spar that's going on here. Then he says, and this is obviously the tell, there is only one who is good. Now, that would be God. Okay? So it's as if, like, you need to acknowledge that I am Yahweh, God in human flesh, before you can acknowledge that what I'm going to tell or say to you is good, is in fact good. So, there, you know, it's as if Jesus is saying, friend, we're on two different planets entirely. And he's teasing that out. Okay. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, again, I think particularly in the Lutheran Protestant sphere of things, we see Jesus as um, necessarily doing something uh, rhetorical here. So, like, Jesus is saying, okay, well, if you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is keep all the commandments perfectly. And that would be a rhetorical move because then the man would say, well, I can't do that. No one can do that. But that's not how this goes. That's just not how the text goes. It's not how the story goes. I'm not, I'm not at all. Well, let me put it this way. I think that Jesus is answering honestly here and in earnest here. And I think what he's teasing at is, um, the way so in wisdom in all the wisdom literature of the scriptures, those of you who are tracking with our Proverbs class will recognize this right away that the way of life is the way of keeping the commandments and not in a legalistic sense and a way in the sense of like not getting dead, <laughs> right? So it's a different way of thinking than the justification frame. And if you're thinking in the justification, the 16th century reformation frame, you know, it's like you got alarm bells going off. But if you're thinking in the wisdom literature frame, there's a way of death and a way of life. The way of life is the way of the commandments. And Jesus is setting before him very much the fact that he is Yahweh, that he is good, and that the way of life is the way of his commandments. So this is the, to borrow from Jesus elsewhere, this is the narrow way. Okay. So just 
you know, again, again, keep that in mind because that is, I have that suspicion that that is what Jesus is doing. I mean, does it, does it work if you interpret this as Jesus is saying, Hey, if you're in her life, keep the commandments perfectly. And it's just this rhetorical move. Yeah. You can make it work. You can make it work. And if that's what you want to hold to at the end of the day, I, you know, fine. I just, I'm not convinced by that. But the way the man phrases himself, he says, what good deed, meaning, hey, uh, let's not get too over-exaggerated. I just want to do one thing. <laughs> I mean, let's not, it's, it's, he says, keep the commandment, because later on he makes it say, oh, I kept them all. What a crock of crud. But no, one deed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, so in the Greek, it's a little more ambiguous. It's what good shall I do? So it's not, so yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, so you have to interpret that. You have to put that in. And that is uh, indeed like, so the word deed, strictly speaking, isn't there. Um, But it just says, what good must I do? that I might have life eternal. Okay. You need to make it simple though. I do we, I don't know. (laughs) So I, yeah. So I mean, in a, yeah, I I think that this becomes clear. I think that the man's confusion, uh, the man's question is confused. And I think Jesus is trying to fetch out why it's confused. Okay. In the first place, this man thinks he knows what goodness is. Yeah but he clearly doesn't because the only good one is standing right in front of him. And he doesn't acknowledge that. Okay. Everything else then is skewed. So what good must I do is completely like obscured in the man's mind, diluted in the man's mind. And Jesus is going to fetch out what that must be for him, what that path of life looks like for him. That's what I actually think is going on. Now, you can you can do it in the old 16th century sort of frame, um, although I'm not entirely convinced that that's the way the 16th century Lutherans themselves did this text. Or just a thought that thought Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, in the same way that Nicodemus thinks he's a rather good chap and maybe just needs to kind of do a little more, maybe just turn by degree, this guy thinks, you know, hey, I got it basically all together, and I just need to know that I'm on the right track or need to know what, what good, what summum bonum, what ultimate good to pursue in order to arrive at eternal life. Is it also perhaps a reference to every other religion? That uh, these are the things I need to do. I'm graded on a scale, on a, on a curve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, I, if I do little little you know, that, that ultimately I'm going to be okay. And so he's chatting with him down the road that so many people do think and then presents at the end something that hopefully causes people to realize that mm-hmm. that's, that, that's not exactly what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a possibility. I think that that's a possibility. Um, I think, I think though, also, as you sort of analyze like Phariseeism and you analyze like, what is this Judaism that seems opposed to Christ or seems to complain that he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes? What's going on there? It's not so much this uh, 16th century meritorious view of my credits need to outmatch my debits. That's not really the way. I mean, there's no indication in the text that I've seen that that that's the way the Jews are thinking. What, What we do is we see the way the Jews are thinking 
And we, ex- and we make our argument on the 16th century that, hey, this dynamic is at play, but it's not identical. And then as 500 years pass on, we go anachronistic and we reread the 16th century into the first century going, oh, these guys are interested in merit and they want to know how they can. I don't know. Self-understood, if you just take your average Pharisee, he thinks he's going to heaven because he's a son of Abraham, follows the law, and is not a Gentile sinner. Now, do you follow the law perfectly? No, no, I don't follow the law perfectly. We're striving in Torah, in the way of the... But that striving and that doing puts us an entirely different spiritual class of people than those Gentile sinners, those Gentile dogs. It's a, it's a kind of self-righteousness, obviously, right? Remember the man in the temple, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this other dude over there, right? It is a form of self-righteousness. That's the connection point why the 16th century reformers grab a hold of that dynamic and utilize it. But it's a mistake then to take 16th century credit, debit, meritorious, medieval Roman Catholic theology and say, aha, that's what's going on in the first century, right? So the the dynamic of self-righteousness is present. And so this man, you know, again, this man, what good must I do to have eternal life? Like, am I on the right path? I think that I am. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, which is you are not on the right path because you are not on my path is effectively what he's saying. Okay. You're following the law, but you're following the law without me. You're following the law, but by way of besting your neighbor, not by way of walking in righteousness and in life. They're, they may superficially have a similarity, but internally, categorically, they're worlds apart. Okay, well, let's go on a little further. Hopefully, uh, this will get clear. And sometimes, you know, this is the way with these difficult texts, you can get bogged down. And that's true also with the parables. And so sometimes the, the best thing to do, like if you start getting bogged down in your own reading, in your own study, just stop, go back to verse one and read quick. And you'll actually start to regain that overarching sense. It'll help you. Anyway, verse 18, or excuse me, I didn't get the rest of Jesus' statement. So why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, and why are we so certain that this is the Ten Commandments here? Do you think that that's only? So let's keep that in mind. Okay. So keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. We always puzzle over why Jesus gets the ordering wrong here. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the generality. 
I comfort myself that sometimes when you're preaching, you don't have to have the perfect order and clarity all the time. You can at least say Jesus appears not to have that all the time. So you do have the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, the seventh commandment, the eighth commandment, the fourth commandment, and then the general summation. But nine and 10 about coveting are left off. Now that's curious, isn't it? That this man is described as rich and Jesus has left off the coveting. It's interesting. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Now, again, you can read that in, in a strict self-righteous, in a strictly self-righteous way. Um, like, hey, I've done that um, entirely. Like, I've done that perfectly. Or you can read this in the way of, um, I, have, I have done my best to walk by these. These have been my guiding light. These I have guarded. These I have, uh, I have set these before me. So you don't necessarily need to read it. And again, in this sort of like pompous, arrogant, I've done it all. You don't have to read it that way. You can, and again, it makes sense. You can make sense of it, but I invite you to consider that a little more soft. These things I have observed. What still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be teleos, which perfect, again, doesn't necessarily mean morally perfect. It means complete brought to maturity, brought to wholeness. If you would be brought to wholeness. I mean, again, if this text is doing what we think it's doing, hey, I've done all that. Why doesn't Jesus say, no, you haven't. (laughs) Liar. You you just just broke the commandment against lying. You just deceived, and you deceived in regard to something religious, in regard to God's name. But that's just not what Jesus does. It's, it's fascinating to take in. All these I have observed or kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be teleos, if you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And here's the punchline, I think, of the whole darn thing. Come and follow me. See, the the man's on a path of the commandments, but it's not on the path of the commandments with Jesus. So is it it indeed the path of life? No. Because the first step is to acknowledge that the one who is good is standing right before you in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Seems like he's not acknowledging his sin. He thinks he's not a sinner. That that may be true. That may be true. But again, I think, and I've heard it preached that way. I've preached it that way. Okay. But if you just pay attention, it's curious that that's not what Jesus points out. In fact, I mean, if this guy is just crassly, grossly, hey, I've kept it all, I've done it all. It sounds like he really means it when he says it. Look, look how tender Jesus' responses to him. I think he's laughed at it much. 
Exactly. So if this man is saying, I've kept all the commandments and kept them perfectly, that would be, how would we diagnose that? We would diagnose that spiritually as complete pride, arrogance, blindness, self-righteousness. And what should you treat that with in regard to law or gospel? Law and the law in its full sternness. Curious that that's not what Jesus does. So if that's not the treatment that Jesus gives, then that's not likely the malady from which this man is suffering. Yeah, but you made the comment of covetousness. And if you look at the way he's phrasing this thing, if he gets rid of everything, he's going to have a problem with covetousness now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I th- and I think you're right on the right track. I think you're... Yeah. 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 In in effect. Yeah. In effect for this man, the first commandment and the ninth and 10th are, are one, right? (laughs) So let's look at, let's look at what Jesus says. If you would be complete again, there's not really rebuke. In fact, there's not, if you would be complete, stop being so self-righteous and believe in me by grace or faith apart from works. But what Jesus directs him to is precisely works. (laughs) Okay, he says, he says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. So again, if this man is like justifying himself by works, Jesus says, go and do a work. Now, again, I know the Lutheran rhetoric here. And by Lutheran, I mean like the 20th century Lutheran rhetoric here that Jesus is just giving him one more impossible hoop to jump through. And maybe it's not all wrong, but it's not all right either. If you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Now, if that's all Jesus said, maybe that case gets stronger. But he says, you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So is he, is he implying that? Bingo. That's the, that is the key. That is the key. Is that this, this man thinks he's going to get eternal life without Jesus. Not that he's self-righteous, not that he's kept all the commandments perfectly, not that he's just this super puffed up guy, but that he thinks he's going to find life apart from Jesus. At the beginning, Jesus punches a hole in that by saying, I want to get the words exactly right. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And then in the end, he gives that to the man by saying, follow me. Now, of course, what the man does is he doesn't. I mean, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So who is this man's God, in fact? His mammon. And you cannot serve God or mammon. And that's what's really being illustrated here. Okay, And that's very important to realize, because you think if you've got a man who has wealth, that wealth doesn't come out of thin air in a, in a Jewish worldview. That is the blessing of God. He's blessed you. He's given you wealth. This man has the blessing of God. He has wealth. He has the commandments set before them. He has the desire to keep them. He's doing it all. What does he lack? Jesus. So that the path of the commandments is an empty path, unless that path is the path of Jesus. I think that that's what's in view here. 
Like, are, are there elements of self-righteousness or elements of uh, having the wrong God very clearly, but elements of self-righteousness or, yeah, sure, but not in the way we usually understand this, not certainly in the crass way. And the key to getting that is that Jesus does, if Jesus does not give the medicine that he should give, if this man is in fact just crassly self-righteous, if we cue off the medicine that Jesus gives, I think we can better understand this man's spiritual ailment. We can see why Jesus is very tender toward him. Pastor? Okay, and that, by the way, is going to help us understand the parable, I think. Otherwise, we're going to get into the parable, and we're going to, you know, again, if you're thinking in this real tight, righteous, self-righteous frame, you're going to conclude things from the parable that cause problems for you when you try to take that into the broader scriptures. Okay, um, we'll see that unfold, though, as we go. Now, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Truly, I say to you, self-righteous people are really a problem. <laughs> Truly, or amen, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the heavens. And here's a parallel modifying statement. You can tell it's filled with Jesus' almost hallmark hyperbole. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are a number of things astonishing here, but the first thing we have to do is get out of our mind that the eye of a needle is referring to some sort of gate in the city walls of Jerusalem, and it's possible, but it's difficult. That is not what's in view here. Rather, the the Saturday Night Live skit of like trying to blend up a blender a camel and squirt it through the eye of a needle is impossible. That's That's the point. And that's precisely what stuns the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Why? Because, again, the view is that being wealthy is the blessing of God and the fruits of a righteous life. So they're looking at this, saying, hey, this this guy has every possible advantage. This guy has everything, and he can't be saved? The rich can't be saved? And they're perplexed by this. That's what it means to be greatly astonished, greatly shocked. They can't make sense of what Jesus is saying. And they ask him, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. I mean, clearly man can't save himself. But what they think to be a blessing... Wealth is, in fact, a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God. So we already see they're doing some backwards thinking here that, again, Jesus is correcting. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, again, um, uh, yet another another proof, and, and maybe... I mean, I don't know, but maybe the most substantial one of all, this was at least the first one I noticed, is look what Jesus says in 27, or look what Peter says in 27 and what Jesus responds with. 
Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? Again, if we're doing this in the Reformation way, Jesus should spank Peter for completely missing the point. Right? I mean, for Peter just getting this completely upside down. But notice that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, in the new cosmos, wonderful language, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Now, again, if we're reading this in the meritorious frame, we got a big problem. Because Jesus is saying, tit for tat, quid pro quo, you gave up everything, I will give you everything. But that's not what's going on here, at least not precisely. There are superficial similarities. That's not what Jesus is up to. Again, this other man had everything but not Jesus. They have left everything but have Jesus. Jesus isn't going to scold them for that. He's going to bless them for that, which is precisely why he answers Peter, not with rebuke and law and how dare you be self-righteous just like this other guy, but with gospel and reward and blessing. And just this remarkable thing that as the Son of Man is enthroned, so you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. That is to say, rule over Christ's Israel, over the 12 tribes. So you see Jesus as the, the Son of Man, as the one enthroned above all Israel, and the 12 tribes of the new Israel. Again, we would just call this the church. Now is probably not the time to go into an in-depth proof of that. But the apostles will be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, I think that that's already happening in shadow. Because who rules over the church? The apostles via their writings. Already they're ruling over and judging the church. Already to, to whose authority do we appeal if there's a disagreement within the church? To that of the disciples, to that of the apostles. And we say, what did they write? There's the judgment. There's the rule. So there's, a, there's an already but not yet in that regard here. Okay, now this look at 29. Again, this is very comforting to those of us who have, in fact, sacrificed or who are being challenged to sacrifice something in order to have the Lord Jesus. Twenty nine expands it out, and everyone, Jesus says, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. All right, so again, in the frame of now but not yet. How is it that we who have left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for Christ's name's sake have already received hundredfold? Well, in the reality of the church, anywhere there's a Christian church, there is a house 
Anywhere where there are Christians, there are new brothers and sisters, father and mother and children, lands along with it. But of course, all of this completed in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a now but not yet reality to this promise of Christ as well. Okay. And here we are. Here we are at the inclusio. Um, Back at 16, how does this pericope begin? Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And again, Jesus does not say, it's not about deeds, it's about faith. Look at the end. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So the answer that Christ gives is you must follow me. That's the answer. What must I do? Follow me. No matter the cost. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is as best as I can do. Erasing all other presuppositions and just paying attention to the text itself, what it's saying. Now, we can extrapolate from that principles that apply 100% to the Reformation and the Reformation usage of uh, rejecting justification by faith plus works. We can certainly do that, but I don't think it's fair to take that theology and read it back onto the text. Okay, so then, the final concluding statement, before we get to the labors of the vineyard, which, so this is the verse that ties these two things together, is verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, enigmatic to be sure, but how are they viewing this rich man, but as one who is first, one who is preeminent, one who has every possible advantage? They are astonished that he turns away from the Lord. Every advantage has been given to him. He is the first who becomes last. While the disciples, who have no such blessings or benefits, are the last who become first precisely because they have Jesus. Now, at the center of this dynamic of the last and the first and the first and the last is, of course, Christ himself. And we're taught that initially, of course, by the Magnificat in Luke's gospel. But that is the idea that Christ himself is the first who becomes last and the last who is truly first. So at the heart of that enigmatic statement of Jesus is he himself and the mystery of his cross. Isn't that precisely the mystery of his cross? That he who is first becomes last, and precisely in his being last, he becomes first unto all his children. You recall, too, how Christ says, you know, remember when his mother and brothers, there's, uh, they think he's gone nuts, and they're standing out the door to save him because they think he's going to get himself killed. And Jesus is told, you know, hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They've come to get you. And he says, these are my mothers and brothers and sisters. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say those who believe in me, but he says those who do the will of my father. See, there's an artificial break put between faith and walking in faith that we've done after the fact that we don't need to do. We, we might need to do it if the question of justification by works is precisely what's in view. 
But that's not the question for 2,000 years of the church. That's the question for a set period of the church, the 16th century. That question continues to be important in the same way that the Trinitarian controversies or the Christological controversies or any other controversy continues to be important for us to keep in mind. But we can go back to the text in its own native context and glean all kinds of things from it that we've been blinded to because we're seeing it through the frame of a particular controversy of church history. Okay. So here again, um, Christ at the center and the first who reject him become last and the last who will have him or follow him become first. Kate, we have an articulation of this. And as Jesus does so masterfully, there are layers in which we can see the first, last, and the last first in this parable. And again, this is where chapter breaks and headings don't do you any good, because there is no break. And indeed, the first verse, the first word of chapter 20 is four. As to say, what comes next is predicated upon what came before. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the reign of the heavens is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, these would be quite literally the first. And if you remember the parable... They're the last. And you're going to see that. So again, not to lose the forest for the trees, it is just that simple, even though other things can be extracted from it. It is just that simple. Okay, um, I, don't, I don't know. This is, like, this is almost like the day laborer thing. Um, like if you go to Home Depot, sometimes you can see the day laborers hanging out there. Or if you go down, what's that street? Is it Camino Capistrano down there in Capo Beach? Yeah, uh, yeah, right. There's like a, there was a vacuum repair shop and those lumber yards. No, there's guys just standing there. They're, they're looking for a job. There you, you're this guy, Tim. You're the perfect example. You're the perfect example. Now, how many times did you go back and forth? Usually just once, I imagine. Because usually with a day labor, you know, when you need labor, you go like this. You go, okay, I got, I got this much work to do. I need this many guys for the day. And you go. But there's something already off about this guy because of how frequently he returns. So in all of Jesus' parables, there's at least one thing off. And, uh, and sometimes very humorous. But this is the case that this is precisely what's off is that this guy comes back. So there's nothing odd that he agrees that he goes early in the morning, that he hires laborers for his vineyard. Notice it's a vineyard, which, of course, has this Old Testament tell that this is about the Lord's kingdom. Okay, Many, many passages in the Old Testament about the Lord's kingdom being the vineyard from which wine is produced. Of course, wine is at the center of, of everything with Christ. Remember the, uh, the, the, trying to put new wine in old wine sacks. You can't do it. His first miracle, turning water into wine. Um, his last true sign, turning uh, wine into his blood. So the vineyard motif is not to be overlooked here. 
but it's not the central point of what Jesus is after. Okay, so after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, I mean, a denarius is the day's wage, so this is completely fair. It's just the standard, right? He sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, implied here is some trust because he doesn't agree with them for any specific amount, nor do they negotiate it. So implied is some trust. Now, you can always, you're always running the risk of reading too much into, the, into these parables. But the fact that the guy is back, I mean, he's probably a known entity and he's known to be just. And he's back and they just agree with, with him for whatever is right. So there's certainly those, those things we can note. Verse 5, so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Something else is going on here, obviously. And by the same, I think we're led to believe it's the same dynamic that he basically says, whatever is right, I will give you. So there's there's at least not any um, explicit mention of a denarius, but rather the implicit in the, he did the same. Okay, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. Um, I forget what the 11th hour is. An hour before quitting time. <laughs> okay, why are, why are they standing there an hour before quitting time? There's two different takes on this that are popular amongst preachers. And the text obviously doesn't say, so maybe it's kind of dumb, but whatever. Uh, One popular take is that um, these guys had opportunity to work, but they didn't. So they're kind of scoundrels. They're kind of 'er ne'er-do-wells. They're just loitering, trying to just, you know, if I'm out of the house, my wife thinks I'm working, I'm not, you know, whatever. Okay. Uh, The other take, and this is more based on... um, based on the research by a guy named Kenneth Bailey, and he spent a lot of time actually living and studying in the Middle East and absorbing the culture. And he talks about it being an honor culture. And one of, so he reads this in a different way, that you're out there, no matter what, trying to get a job, any job, because to come home to your family empty-handed is humiliating. So they're going to be out there hoping against hope until the last hour, and then they'll come home and be somewhat ashamed that they don't have any money, they don't have any dinner in hand. Okay, Again, there's no refrigerators or microwaves, so you get your denarius, you go to the market, you get your food, you bring it home. There's no food other than maybe the bare necessities that are just there for the family. So that's why they're there. And if that is in fact the case, I mean, I kind of prefer it just because I think it colors the character, colors in the character already established of this strange master of the house who keeps going back for more and more and more. There's no way that this guy is going to know exactly how much work he and keep compulsive. Why is he going back? Because he delights in giving these men jobs. And in an honor culture, that makes perfect sense. 
In fact, he's compulsive. Every time he gets back to the vineyard, he sees it all happening and he thinks back to those guys sitting on the street and he goes, I got to do something for them. And he goes and picks them up and says, I'll give you whatever's right. Get in. It's really desperate then. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, and I think what he's doing here too is he's giving them. I mean, I, I this is really if you if you view this in in the way of the honor culture, he's bestowing on them something much greater than whatever monetary pay. He's bestowing upon them the honor of going home that day to the wife and children who are sitting there, who are going to say, "Dad, Dad, what did you do? What'd you get? What's for dinner? What'd you bring?" Instead of like nothing. It's like, you know, something. And that, you know, so, so it just, I think it colors in. We've got this character who's compulsively going out when nobody would do that. We already know it's gracious, but it seems to be all the more exceedingly gracious if he's doing this not only to, not just to give them a handout. I mean, that's gracious in itself, but that's why he doesn't just go and say, you know, here, have a denarius and go home to your kids. But he says, come and work, even at the last hour of the day, when that work is like silly. I mean, what are you going to do? Get your work gloves on and get the shovel in hand. And it's like, there's the bell. We're going home. But so what he's doing is he's actually giving them the labor, which gives them the honor. He's not giving them a handout, which would be shameful. You know, I got this, but I don't do anything for it. So it was charity. So he's inviting them into a sense of honor by the very labor. Now, I think if you grasp that point, it starts to tie in much more deeply with what went before. Because what went before was in fact about labor. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man won't, follow, won't leave what he has and follow Jesus. He won't do the labor. But the disciples do the labor. We've, we have left everything and we followed you. What shall we have? Everything. So I think labor is precisely what's in view. It's not a meritorious labor, but it's a graciousness that God... So think about it this way, that God calls us as disciples to labor in his kingdom and in his vineyard, not because he needs it, not because it's how we merit or earn eternal life, but because it gives us honor and dignity. Because he loves us more than saying, I'm going to just save you out of pure charity, so that you feel terrible about it, and you feel like, gosh, I'm in heaven, like I'm a complete scoundrel, I'm just in heaven by this guy, by God's grace. Yeah, you're there completely by his grace, but he so honors you and loves you that he fills you with the dignity of laboring in his kingdom. Does that make sense? It's grace upon grace, it's gift upon gift. We're just not used to thinking about the gift of work. Yeah, please. It makes sense if- didn't somewhere else, like Paul, say that God has yeah, yeah. plan for us or something like that? Yeah, exactly. That's that's in Ephesians. That's the oh, one hundred percent. I'm convinced that like our allergy to works is in fact a rejection of God's gift, and it's a rejection of it's a it's a. I mean, again, it's not egregious. We know why we're doing it, and we're doing it with good intentions, but the consequence is poorly. I think uh, uh, the consequence is bad. So I think this is what you maybe were referring to. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, and I think that that's, that's grace upon grace. That's where not only does he forgive us and save us by grace, but then he actually loves us and honors us by giving us good works to do or laboring in his vineyard. Does that make sense? I know here in America, we kind of don't, we tend not to think of work as like a necessarily honorable thing, you know, work as little as possible and get paid as much as possible. But in honor culture, it's not like that. You don't want a handout. You want the dignity of having done something to get that return. Okay, so back to those at the 11th hour, and now it's just absurd. I mean, the ridiculous grace of this guy. It's just absurd. An hour before closing, he goes out and gets them, and he finds the, he finds the others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Now, that's the rub of how you take this. Um, they said to him, because no one has hired us. And, you know, I think uh, prob- probably in the sense that you, you would read this, well, why has no one hired them? I mean, either they're lying and deceitful, which shows his grace all the more, or why has no one hired them? I mean, remember at recess when they picked teams? <laughs> I mean, these guys are probably the dregs. You got you know, one-legged Ronnie over there and, you know, the guy that's blind and the other guy that's deaf and, you know, the guy with the bad back, he's already hunched over. Okay. I, that's either way you put this and it, whatever, like, you know, kind of fluff you want to put on the text itself, it results in the fact of amplifying the graciousness of this uh, vineyard owner, the master of the house. All right, no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. I mean, again, this is how Jesus is viewing works, keeping the commandments, not as something you have to do in order to be saved, but as something he gives you to do because he loves you and wants you to have dignity. You go into the vineyard too. I think those are the sweetest words. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now we're being cued back in to the theme of the text. Many who are first will be last and last first. Who does Jesus choose uh, to put first all the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last. So even at this sense, the last are first and the first are, are last, or however that goes, okay? And when those hired, verse 9, about the 11th hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now, again, that was never promised then, just that he would do what is right. So we see that even the last received the same as the first. Now, verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. How are they thinking about this? They kind of are thinking about this meritoriously. You know, hey, my more, you know, more work. I'm comparing myself to my neighbor. And that's really at the root of the sort of Jewish Pharisaic works righteousness is I'm going to get in because I'm better than these others. 
Okay. I've done more than these others. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled. They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Okay. Now, I think an interesting and worthwhile meditation, and I know we're running low on time here. I want to be respectful of that. But an interesting and worthwhile meditation is to think this way, that if, if you are thinking sort of man-centered and comparing yourself to others, you can totally see their point. I mean, they're kind of getting a raw deal. I always sort of felt that way growing up here in this world. <laughs> and I mean, same with the older brother. Man, he kind of got a wrong deal, you know? Like, what's up with that? Uh, okay, so it is worth thinking, like, with a man-centered, human-centered frame, their case makes a certain sense to it. What Christ is going to do in just a minute is put himself or the master of the house in the center, and all of a sudden you're going to see it a totally different way. That's true, but also, it's hilarious because you have to go with the prodigal son when you hear this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they're very parallel. They're very parallel. Well, okay, so let's go a little further, and then I'll see if I can amplify that point or maybe clarify it. All right, so they grumble. That's the key. I mean, and this is like, this is why some people take the Jew-Gentile here in the history of the church. It's not strictly in view, but the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness at Yahweh. Okay, well, whatever. They grumbled at the master of the house. These last, again, look at their comparison. So that's the thing, it's comparison. These last worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Now, a lot of folks put weight on that go because they're leaving the vineyard. Everybody else stays. Uh, Now, in the logic of the parable, that's not a major point. I mean, you'd figure all these guys would go, okay? But when you think of the vineyard as the kingdom of God, and now all of a sudden the go takes on a little different flavor, doesn't it? This is condemnation of those who compare themselves to others and begrudge God his goodness unto the others, which sounds like what? The Pharisees, who are, again, it's not there so much that they're saying, hey, I've kept the commandments perfectly. They're just saying, how dare you give to me the same thing you give to a prostitute, the same thing you give to a tax collector, Right. So that seems to be what's at play here. Uh, you know, I, again, you can read the friend as sarcastic or tender. I think in keeping with Jesus' rather tender, rather even keeled tone, I'm inclined to see this as, uh, as friendly, not uh, rhetorical, not bitter or sarcastic, but friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for Denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Now, here's the key. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose 
with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Here's the whole parable of the generosity of this man. And so this is, this is the way to, you know, and I think that this is sort of the mystery of salvation is like from a human perspective, from a looking at works the wrong way, you go, hey, I've borne all this, I've done all this, I should get more than the prostitute who in her last minutes believes on Christ and is saved. Yeah, thief on the cross is often drawn in here. Exactly right. Great biblical example. But now view it not from yourself and your own self, but from God's perspective. And he's like, look, I called you all into my vineyard. That's a gift in itself that you have the dignity of work. I pay you all the same. That's my generosity to all of you. Do you begrudge me my generosity? And viewed from that frame, then, you know, how could you ever say, no, I don't want that prostitute who believed in you to have salvation. It's simply all God's grace. The very fact that you were called into the vineyard, that's God's grace. The fact that he gave you the dignity to work, that's God's grace. The fact that he paid you a denarius, that's God's grace. And whatever his arrangement is with anyone else, who cares? That's God's grace. That's the beautiful, wonderful thing. And that's how the first are last and the last are first. Now, as this applies more broadly to what Jesus is experiencing, which is the rejection of the Pharisees who are saying, hey, we've done all this. They don't deserve it. Now, Jesus is teaching his disciples the better way. I call all, but those who are first are going to be last and are going to be gone, while the very last are going to be the first and are going to remain. Yeah, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, and this is exact. I, I mean, yeah, hidden here is like, if you're going to judge the master of the house, if you're going to judge Jesus, in whose position have you just put yourself? Which doesn't that hearken back to? Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. This is, this, I, you read the same thing in the, like a, the, you know, the parable of the lost son, you know, the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. He, he comes back. And the brother said, I've done all this stuff and never left. Yeah. But he owns everything. Yeah, yeah. And then he's telling his dad, you never killed anything. I'm thinking, why are you such an idiot? You own everything, <laughs> so why didn't you take a cow and kill it? I yeah, mean, he's yeah. such an arrogant snob. And then I, I'm thinking, go back to what's happening um, with Moses. When the first time he keep, kills that Egyptian because the two people are fighting, and then he comes back, and the two new people are fighting. And the guy that he says, why are you breathing up on your friend over here, fellow Jew? And he says, who made you king? And I'm thinking, you sound like a Democrat. You're looking at him. You're the one that started the argument and the fight. And now you're complaining about because you don't want justice. Hmm. Your way, the mm-hmm. justice you want. You want to be the one. 
So that's what I, I, I see here in some cases. The people that are upset because all the people are going away, got their money and trucking on, and it's the one individual that's coming back and saying, hey, I think I deserve more. No, I don't think you deserve more. You're just the biggest complainer. <laughs> well, your comparison with the, uh, with the prodigal son is apropos, I think. You've got the first, last, and the last first there because at the end you go, who's in the party? And it's not the first, he's the last, he's out, he refuses to go in. And it is, in fact, the last who's brought in and, in fact, in the party. And similarly here, who's in the vineyard at the end? It's not the first, even though he bore the most honor of working in the labor and working in the vineyard, he's cast himself out. He wills not to be there. Um, But the last, whether they came at the third, ninth, or third, sixth, ninth, or eleventh hour, they're all in. And so, again, just look at 16, just so you, you have it proof positive. I mean, Jesus has mentioned it three times now from 1930 to 2016. Three times he's used this expression, so the last will be first and the first last. And that is his summary teaching to his disciples, and I think builds upon and actually then clarifies why his interaction with the rich young man is the way it is. The rich young man is, has every, every advantage, is truly first in every way, but because he won't have Jesus, walks away, casts himself out. The first is last. While the last, the disciples who labor in the vineyard, who give up everything they have and follow Jesus, those last are first. Yeah, please. If you look at this in terms of the wealth of questions, contrast is with the little children. I think that's I think that's such a fantastic insight because of course those are the commandments missing <laughs> and because that's in a sense particularly what this rich man is is dealing with you know oh yeah 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 exactly yeah it's uh it's really incredible I you just have brought out another theme that Jesus has woven together. When you see that Jesus is intentionally weaving all of these themes together with such a minimum of words, it'll blow your mind because you realize there's no theologian even close to Jesus. With an economy of speech, he weaves together such complex, masterful themes that you just honestly can't help but be in awe. Jesus is hands down the greatest theologian. I know that that's kind of Captain Obvious stuff, but sometimes we think Paul is, <laughs> you know? Sometimes we think, well, Paul speaks clearer. Paul does plainer. Yeah, well, 
And it's also the guy has an attitude. Yeah, we have to admit that, right? Because he said, oh, we work in the burden of the sun and the heat. And I mean, he could have gone on for another 20 minutes on this route. Yeah, yeah. He does have an attitude because he's grumbling. There's no doubt about that. But if you're looking, he says, this is like the kingdom of heaven. I said, you were socializing with the other people while working in the field. If you look mm-hmm. at it that way, mm-hmm. you, you probably wasn't that hard. You were out there talking, socializing, doing things. Well, I think I think you bring out a good point in that this guy is thinking um, in the way of the world. I mean, that's why what he that's why his complaint made sense to me as a little kid, because, you know, I'm thinking by nature the way of the world. And at verse one, we're told the kingdom of heaven is like, I mean, the kingdom of the earth is like, hey, everybody, you know, should get paid fairly. (laughs) And the kingdom of heaven is like. Why are you begrudging me my generosity? <laughs> hey, well, we're a few minutes over. So as much as I would love to just continue to <laughs> meditate on this text with you, we probably ought to call it quits. Of course, I'll be here if, if you got any questions or concerns or if anything didn't set right with you. I'm happy to see if I can clarify. And next week, we'll go into Matthew 21, and we'll, we'll be on, on track to finish out the parables in Matthew's gospel, the unique way he uses them. We'll move on from there then and take a look at how the other gospel writers leverage those parables. Uh, Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, we see the glorious grace of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, who bestows eternal life upon all and the dignity of laboring in your vineyard upon all. We ask that you would bless us as we go our homeward way with a quiet and restful night, that we might rise in your vineyard and carry out our vocations, knowing that your gracious benevolence, your forgiveness, and your grace cover us tomorrow and all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.